Hello, and again, welcome to BitDepth. I'm Santiago Ramones. Across from me, through the power of the internet, is... You can say your Lee Chambers. <laughs> um, so, of course, who are you? What do you do? Yep, so I'm Lee Chambers. I'm based in Preston in the north of England. I'm an environmental psychologist and well-being consultant. And a big part of what I do is helping individual business owners, entrepreneurs, and small to medium-sized organizations to embed well-being into the business processes, to look at company cultures and how to be more conscious, how to approach development of employees, ensure that their mental and physical health are bolstered, and really just have a culture of care, which then promotes a lot of things within businesses, such as more productivity, more collaboration, more innovation, and generally less sickness and less unhappiness, high morale, more motivation, and happier people. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So let's, uh, before we get to that part, let's kind of start from the beginning. Uh, School, university, where did you go to school? What was your major and why? Yeah, so I went through my childhood. My parents were hard workers. They made sure I had a roof over my head and food on the table mm. and a few presents at Christmas. Uh, and my childhood was relatively stable. Uh, they identified early that I was I was quite clever and my mm-hmm. parents wanted me to go to university because I would be the first one in the extended family to do so. Yeah. So I kind of took that pathway and and I didn't really try hard, but (laughs) I was academically bright. Um, So I coasted through school like a lazy boy would. And then I went to college to try and decide what I wanted to do. Uh, At college, I found the world of entertaining myself and that bit of freedom and probably didn't do as well academically as I could have. (laughs) <laughs> but I decided for my major to take international business psychology. And the main reason for that was I hadn't really decided exactly what I wanted to do. Mm. And this particular degree had units of comparative politics, geopolitics, historical context, business systems, organizational psychology, and languages. So it basically allowed me a real depth of information depth of information yeah, yeah. but not narrowing down so much because i thought that if i if i narrowed down too much it wouldn't it would restri- restrict my options yeah, yeah. But i'd also end up i'd also end up bored <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> um so i had uh, an interesting time learning that but in my second year i moved into the city where i was going to university in manchester and for the first six months, I joined new societies, made new friends. I was enjoying myself. Uh, but unfortunately, after I went back after Christmas, I started to struggle a bit with my like child to adult transition, trying to understand and define who I was going to become as a man and the direction that I wanted to take in my life. I didn't really have the emotional intelligence to dig deeper inside myself and find out who I was authentically. And this was 20 years ago. So in that same respect, there wasn't the resources available, the people to to speak to, the internet places to be to ask the questions. And that led to me uh, freezing on stage in an interview presentation in front of my whole university year. Mm. Um, It led to me starting to struggle with my self-care and just led me to spiral down to end up isolating myself in my university dorm. And after two weeks, my parents came and took me back home. Mm. 
So I had that kind of particular challenge and went home and tried to build myself back up. Mm. I managed to go back, reset what I needed to and graduate. Yeah. And that took me into the world of corporate finance on a, <laughs> in a graduate job to be a financial advisor, taking my love of statistics and my love of helping people and fusing mm. them together. So this was in 2007. Mm. So unfortunately, six months later... yeah. My professional qualification was taken away because they couldn't afford to fund it. <laughs> and then a week later, the job was taken away because they were making people redundant. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I've defined this pathway, but wow, like it's gone. What yeah. what, what should I do? <laughs> so I, w- <laughs> I went and got a job at local government in efficiency management and started my own video game business, buying and selling video games as an e-commerce merchant. And that brought me the ability to all of a sudden fund myself. So I paid off my student debt. And then I earned so much money after the first year, I was able to buy my first house. Wow. And it it went up to six. All of these things. (laughs) Yeah, it went up to six figures very, very quickly. Mm. And I just managed to scale it. And I'm still working all alongside this for the kind of, for the social connection element. And also still feeling like, I've got to kind of build a career alongside this. Who knows how sustainable it is? Mm. And then that took me on the path to start thinking, well, I had my qualifications taken away, but I'm actually going to take ownership and start doing them myself. So I started doing qualifications in performance nutrition, in strength and conditioning coaching. And then I took my soccer coaching badges here in the UK, which allowed me to coach. And that was really for me to hone my own physiology and also to understand how I work more. Yeah, yeah. And... After a period where I left local government and started working to help unemployed people get back into work. So I was helping them build the confidence, find the direction and really get an understanding of what they wanted to do and how they could communicate that. I spent six months there and then I spent six months in elite sport. So a sports performance agency, helping athletes to get that little bit better Open my eyes up to an amazing world of experimentation, the cutting edge of science, how much he's put in effort-wise to try and get 0.1% faster, but also made me think if this money and effort was spent on the general population, how much impact it could possibly make. And then at that point, that's when I became ill and lost the ability to walk over the course of a week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, my I, I can't just have you say that and then let that just pass by and me go on to other <laughs> things. So, so please explain how you lost the ability to walk and kind of tell that story and how you worked through that. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the point where I'd met my wife and had a son. He was 18 months old. My wife was pregnant, six months pregnant with my daughter. And I was independent, healthy, playing team sports with my friends going doing what I wanted, generally speaking, when I wanted to do it. Mm. And on a Thursday evening, my wrist uh, locked in place. Mm. And I was like, maybe I've just used the computer too much this week. Maybe Mm. I've done too much typing. I'll just rest it over the weekend. And then on the Sunday, I went out for a meal with my family and friends. And on the way back, my knees locked in place. So that when I got out of the car, it just wouldn't move. Yeah. So... At that point, I was like, okay, so the doctors are closed, but on Monday morning, I'm going to go. So I hobbled to the doctors and they gave me some corticosteroids, said there's a lot of swelling there. Hopefully they should take it down. 
And then on Tuesday, my shoulder started to rise up towards my ear and mm. that locked in place as well. Whoa. So at that point, I knew it was quite serious. Mm -hmm. But being a young man, you feel a bit unstoppable. And, oh, the doctor's <laughs> giving you these pills. You'll be fine. It'll <laughs> By Friday, it'll be fine. Yeah. Woke up on Wednesday morning and my other knee started to lock gradually. At that point, I knew I was in trouble. And my mother-in-law came round, bundled me into the car and took me to hospital. Mm. And that led on a journey of me being in hospital for a month, unable to walk, unable to show myself, unable to feed myself properly. Um, and at first, that feels, it felt like, it felt quite scary. I didn't really know what was happening. They started to do a lot of tests. They found that my immune system was attacking the connective tissue in my joints, thinking it was some kind of infection. Mm. Um, and that had led me joints to swelling up so much that they started to become displaced and locked in place. Mm -hmm. So obviously that was a really challenging time. And for that first week, I was a bit like, doesn't seem very fair. Um, you know, why me? I was fit and healthy. Mm -hmm. uh, but you have a lot of time to reflect when you can't walk around. Sure. You can't really do anything. And that started to turn into, actually, I've been really ungrateful for my mobility all these years. Mm. And now I've got people coming, coming, you know, coming to look after me, coming to show me. I've been ungrateful for them, all these people who care for me as well. And in fact, I've been ungrateful for the free education, the opportunity to set up a business, all the different job opportunities that I've had. Just being in the first world where, you know, I've got food, water, shelter, and my basic needs are met. Like, yeah. you've been ungrateful for all these things. So don't sit here and, and grieve that sure. you've lost your mobility. Go and fight and get it back. So that really ignited me to be like, okay, so I'm going to be proactive. I'm going to take control of my recovery, and I'm going to get back on my feet. So I went into walking rehab into intensive physio and hydrotherapy. I'd get up every morning, I'd do the stretches and the exercises that I needed to do. It was painful. A lot of time I was stiff. You didn't really feel like doing them. But I was like, my daughter was born not long after I came out of hospital. I had to adapt a lot of things I did with her, but I was adamant that my power of why for recovery was gonna be walking when she's walking. Yeah. And, yeah. and that fueled me massively to get up on those mornings when it was hard, to go to the hospital again, to make sure that I did everything that my physio asked me to do. And even those times when I was taking less steps or it was more painful and it, it looked on paper like my progress was going backwards, I just had that catalyzing reason to keep pushing on to attack the disease as much as it was attacking me and that mindset of this isn't a threat, it's a challenge. I'm going to get through this. And I've been through mental health issues and graduated. I've lost my graduate job, but then took taken ownership and developed my own career. I can do it with this disease as well. I can bounce back higher to become more than I was. And for me, in many ways, it's been a defining moment that's led me to shape my life to now help other people. And that's a really big thing for me. And it's the reason why I run the business that I run today. Yeah. Um, so what, like, what is it? Do you still have it? Is it, do you still keep working through it or is it kind of in the past now? <laughs> yeah. So the best way to describe it is it's a chronic disease. So mm. I'll have it for the rest of my life. Sure. It's, it took me six months to get back on my feet, but I had some issues with my spine compacting. Mm. So it took another five months to walk a mile unaided. 
Mm. And since then, I've not lost my mobility again. So I've been fully mobile now for five years. But I've been having to manage the disease through medication, which Mm. dampens my immune system. Mm. Um, But I wasn't happy about that because that's obviously the the medication is cytotoxic it's obviously killing off your white blood cells so they don't attack you it's not a great um (laughs) longevity method it's something that just controls it so i've spent the last five years modifying and experimenting with my nutrition my sleep my movement and my mindset documenting how things made me feel Mm -hmm. and the reactions that I got, so what I could tolerate, what energized me, what drained me, what made me feel fatigued. Mm. And I'd managed to document that and journal that down to find exactly what I could eat that would keep me in a good place, how much sleep I needed when I needed to sleep, what I needed in my sleep environment, and how much movement was too much and caused me too much pain, how much was not enough and would cause me stiffness, and finding what I could do and find my limits and within that i'll be medication free next month so i've managed to start controlling the disease by lifestyle just Mm. over years of experimenting yeah that's uh i i've kind of long had this aversion to like taking pills and like i've had a head if i have a headache i'll just kind of work through it instead of taking something and so that that's kind of a prime example of like you yourself can conquer a thing and not necessarily need the kind of brute force chemical just to like get through it. Um, yeah, definitely. And I, I kind of think that in some ways, medication works effectively for some people. Mm. You can't blanket medication and say it's all bad. But mm. in so many ways, a lot of drugs are designed to one symptom to create one function and the reason why they then have a list of 10 side effects is because we're massively integrated complex individuals and what works for one person doesn't work for another because we're bio-individual but also if you try to counterbalance one symptom you are knocking a number of uh, biological systems out of process exactly which is why they have such wide list we're so interconnected we have Mm -hmm. to look at things across a spectrum rather than just the isolated niche down focus one thing sure because then you start to neglect everything that's around it yeah (laughs) um and that kind of is a great transition into uh you described as a environmental psychologist what is First of all, just what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, the best way to describe it to people, because it's quite a new science, so to speak, uh, there's three branches. So there's environmental psychologists that look at the creation of urban environments. So they assist with the design of offices, homes, cities, transport networks to create ways that are help people with the well-being and create people's behaviors that are regenerative to their health. There's a section of us who look at how humans interact with nature and how nature interacts with humans. So the power of being outside, our evolutionary biophilia and elements that you know we take from nature that regenerate us and how that affects our behaviors to nature. 
mm. and the final section they look at how we can make ourselves and our behaviors more environmental so looking at pro-environmental behavior and they kind of look at why some people believe climate change is incredibly dangerous why some people believe climate change doesn't even exist and mm. the whole spectrum mm. in between and starting to understand how our values how social norms actually lead us to have certain beliefs and how that can be changed for the positive in the future. So my particular element is looking around offices and sleep environments and how we can incorporate elements into those mm -hmm. which leave us more regenerated, less environmentally stressed mm -hmm. and feeling more in flow and in a place where that's designed for our functional needs and the things that we want and that we're part of that. So the biggest thing I do is a lot of work around taking a group of employees and saying, okay, how can we improve your environment? Because mm -hmm. most workplace environments are designed by an architect mm -hmm. and signed off by boards and facilities managers and people who don't <laughs> use the space. Right. Um, so then how do you... Uh, what are sort of some of those differences that happen? So we have a traditional workplace environment and then how do you sort of reshape uh, each environment to kind of make sense with the way that our bodies interact with the environment rather than just what looks good on paper? Yeah, so in so many ways, it's actually getting that quantitative and qualitative data from the people who use the space. Mm -hmm. So they will, have an, they will have an image of how they feel it should flow, it should work. They mm. will know the issues that continually bug them on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. And right. we're talking about, you know, position of how people are sat. Is it too dense? Is it too sparse? Can they not communicate properly? You look at temperature, lighting, ventilation, and sometimes it's just positioning. So someone, everyone has an individual environmental need. Some people will want more natural light. Some people will want higher temperature. And across an office, these are things which actually do vary. Mm -hmm. But who decides where you sit in an office? Right. It's quite often right. some pre-designated, you know, your team's here, you mm -hmm. sit there. And people's environmental needs being different so our, light, our, our need for light changes a bit as we get older, mm. but everyone has their own marker and it's about actually saying where do you feel the most comfortable? If you're comfortable, you work more effectively, you're less stressed, less anxious, mm. and your mental health is in a better place. And really so much design is around, because I deal with architects who say, if it looks beautiful, everyone will be happy. <laughs> right. Right. And it's like, no, no, no. The people right. who right. use the space would like to design it their way. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. when I survey people and interview people, what you'll often get is the same niggly little things keep coming up. Mm -hmm. And if they took that to the manager, the manager would be like, oh, this person's just having a bit of a moan. When you take it and say 63% of your employees are saying this is an issue <laughs> and, you can, yeah. and I can change that in 10 minutes, it's like, okay, so maybe we'll listen to you here. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just about bringing that, the opinions of the workers through interview and survey and taking the evidence and building those together to actually design offices where people really can come in, it work works for them, their environment resonates with them and they leave work as well as they come in. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
So then kind of going with, with that, you also do, uh, personal life coaching. Uh, so I guess what, what in your life, what is the bug in you that kind of made you go, I have to coach, uh, businesses and people through helping them make life choices. You don't have to help people, but like, it's important enough to you to make that a a goal of your career. So what, what, what's in you that causes that <laughs> yeah so i think it's a not part of it is a natural underlying thing so when i've looked throughout my whole life at the friends that i've made the experiences that i've enjoyed the hobbies that i do and the jobs and lived experience that i've got a lot of that underlying thread for it, all that has been helping people Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think I kind of align that into when I was doing my qualifications. A lot of my qualifications are around physiology and psychology, mm-hmm. which can be utilized to help others. A lot of my jobs were helping someone to optimize something, whether it be processes, people. And when I kind of bring all that together and, and was in that hospital bed, it kind of come to me over time, like, your purpose really is to optimize things and to help people. Yeah. So how can you take that and create more of an impact? Mm. And I started to think, you know, I can bring together my experience, the experience I've had through my career and all my qualifications. If I, if I bind them together, I can create something which helps people to get a direction in their lives, to really dig a bit deeper and find out what the real ambitions are behind what they've kind of put there as the society's expectations. Right. And with that path aligned, I can help them with the sleep, with the nutrition, to experiment like I have. And they might not have a chronic disease, but they can increase the performance massively. If I can get off my medication by doing it, then if they start to compound these very small changes in a number of different physiological areas, then they can improve the performance in life, have more time and energy to do the things that they love and, you know, start to break through the plateaus and the glass ceilings they're facing in their life and just then help them look at, right, so what are the limiting beliefs that are going to hold you back from going on that journey, from pushing on further and helping them unpick them? And then finally giving them a bit of a framework and a pathway to follow where I can support them through that process as they start to move towards the potential. And I suppose that's the process that I've done, having that experimenter's mindset, digging deep into myself. And so much of it comes from being that young man who wasn't able to authentically dig that deep Mm -hmm. and that desire to help other people do that through all my challenges. I can open up and be vulnerable and not say, you know what, I'm not perfect. Look at all these things that have happened on my journey, but they've helped me grow. Like I've grown through the suffering Mm -hmm. and so can you. Your failures and your challenges, detach the emotion from them, look back, open them apart like an experiment and look, there's probably things that you won't do again there's always a little bit of treasure in your experiences and kind of convey it's like an oyster. So an oyster doesn't create a pearl unless it gets attacked by a parasite and creates that irritation for it to then create a pearl. And we've got to kind of go through that irritation, but there's a little bit of treasure in every challenge that we go through. And it's just about detaching the emotion and putting your lab coat on and treating it like a bit of an experiment to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a beautiful thing. Um, 
in all of your time where you've been uh, coaching people and businesses and all this stuff, what's sort of been uh, some of the common trends that seem to uh, come up that you're like, man, it seems like every time I have to tell people the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So common trends are people have goals that are either other people's goals or have been shaped by society. Mm-hmm. And when you actually dig down a bit deeper and find out why they've got those goals, you actually find that it's never what they originally thought it was. Yeah. So I think that's usually the first one. Uh, the second one is people who work really hard and have the head down are sometimes running away from where they want to go. So they're actually yeah. running in the opposite direction. <laughs> yeah. But they've got the head down, so they're not looking so they don't see. Mm-hmm. Um, the other ones are just how much people, everyone has what they need inside of them. Everyone has access to a lot of knowledge. In fact, when I'm doing a lot of stuff around sleep, nutrition, movement, most people already know most of the stuff. Right. They just right. struggle to act, take actionable small steps, become consistent and build little habits which compound. Mm-hmm. And so many people, we have quite a short-term view. So we want short-term gains now. We don't really want to play the long game because we don't see the how things compound. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that stops us from, you know, really starting that process because we take what is a really big lofty goal that we want and we don't smash it into a million pieces to make <laughs> it doable a little bit every day. We tend to just look at that big statue and think, oh, okay, I'm going to be that one day, but I don't even know where to start. It feels right, a bit daunting. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And then finally, the other thing is we all carry limiting beliefs from our childhood and those things that have been put in our minds that have stuck with us. And it's actually just digging down because they hold you back from so many things. And yet it's almost like a little backpack that you carry around with you. Mm -hmm. The things that people have told you over and over again when you were a child, the things that your parents have told you quite often innocently and Mm -hmm. the self-talk that you've believed as you've been going through school and how you've been labeled and it's Mm -hmm. so easy to let that kind of sink into your subconscious and keep and stay there influencing every decision you ever make so yeah i think those are the common trends and again it's just how society is how modern parenting is and yeah it's about trying to get unstuck from those right yeah um so we're kind of living through a weird time right now uh, how has uh, COVID affected how you run your business and talk to people and n- not being able to go face to face as much or, uh, how does that affect your life? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, I was kind of half digital, half physical. Sure. So sure. being hybrid has meant that I've just moved digital and the rapport built with clients already from the physical relationships mean that that's been quite an easy process. Good. But in other ways, I started to look at, you know, the future of these kind of things. Like we can recreate office environments in VR and test things in that way. We can start to look at actually holding our health awareness events and our workshops through tools like Zoom and Teams and Hangouts and actually impact more people to get to places where we weren't reaching before. I think the biggest thing for us is it's allowed us to step back 
a little bit and worked on the business outside. So it's kind of look right. So we have, you know, a sphere of influence. We are, we really have a passion about what we want to do and the change that we want to make. We've been doing a lot of that locally. How can we spread that? And obviously this has allowed us to look and think, right, the conversation needs to be bigger. It's time to look at collaborating with people doing similar things across the world. And that allows us to make a bigger impact, to make a bigger difference, to kind of spread this message that a culture of care is so important. And I think that this time as well has helped a lot of people start to not only slow down a bit and realign and start to think, you know, what do I actually want to do? Yeah. But also made people a bit more compassionate, looking out for the vulnerable in the communities, having deeper conversation with the friends about how they feel, the challenges that they're having. And I just think that the culture is going to be more absorbent when we come out of the other side for people to be looking after themselves, to be having meaningful conversations and actually listening to each other, asking more powerful questions and just being in a place where communities have come back together a little bit as we become more and more segregated and isolated in recent society. And I just think people are starting to see that all these possessions when you're surrounded by them all the time, they're not that valuable. Mm-hmm. And actually, we've been really ungrateful for our access to nature, our ability to go and have all these experiences. When they've been taken away, we've been restricted. Suddenly, we realise how powerful having that autonomy and freedom is, but also how ungrateful we are for the amazing things that we can go and do every single day. And again, we're not very grateful until the crisis hits. And when things are restricted, it starts to sink in just how lucky we are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then kind of with that, uh, there's, uh, since you're kind of digging into people's lives and finding the stuff that really kind of keeps them down or sometimes just themselves, but what are the effects of uh, technology and politics and how has that sort of affected people positively and negatively and how does that shape how you do what you do yeah i mean it's interesting because if you kind of look at how social media works it's built to exploit people's psychological hooks right so in that way what it does is it naturally tunnels tunnels people down towards other people who believe a similar thing Mm. And it only expands a confirmation bias that surely these beliefs are correct because Mm -hmm. I'm being moved towards people who also believe a similar thing. Mm -hmm. And again, it's like when people start to understand that actually, and you can explain this to them, that social media paints a, a picture of still images and a few videos of how life has been. Mm-hmm. what happens is you only see these snapshots of other people's lives and you naturally have this belief that their lives are good. Mm-hmm. Their lives are possibly better than yours. And even if you look back on your own life, so say you look back on your social media from three years ago, you won't remember the argument we you have with your friend before. You'll just see the picture you had an hour later when you've made up again. Mm-hmm. And it actually makes us believe that our past was more positive than it actually was. And that can bring people down and make people feel actually, you know, why is it not the way I want it to be? Mm. And Mm. we want to fit in. We have a tribal mentality to not 
and conform and not fall out because back in the day, we had to hunt as pack animals. That's the only way we could run down our prey. If you were excluded from the tribe, you were dead. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we, we have all these, you know, biological processes and technology, unfortunately, mostly is used to exploit those because the attention economy is worth billions of dollars. And if they can keep you on the app, then they're making money. Right. But, but at the same time, the future of technology, it allows us the capacity to build in well-being. Like the future of work, if we look at automation, if we look at biotech, there is the chance for people to be better, for biotech to help people diagnose things beforehand, to make more preventative measures, to start to challenge the future's well-being problems today. And again, that automation, it opens up capacity for businesses to actually start looking after and developing the stuff and for people to start utilizing the data they can get. Like for so many people now, we started wearing fitness trackers. We're starting at that very early stage of wearable technology. And I think so many people at the moment worry, get the data, but how much do they then utilize, understand and direct that data to make informed choices in their lives? Mm -hmm. And I think as that becomes a little bit more integrated, hopefully people will get the other end of things where they can then take actionable steps based on the data. Because I think so many people at the minute are kind of, they don't really go that far into the data. But again, it's, it's a world out there where the technology of possibility, it's mm. massive, it's unknowable, and yet it comes with both its threats and its challenges to our well-being, and it's just finding that balance and bringing that awareness and using things to better the world. And I think in some ways we're becoming a bit more conscious to that yeah. just gradually. And again, because a lot of these apps and platforms are free, somewhere in there is something that monetizes it to make it worthwhile running. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we've just got to put a little bit of thought into it's free because, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a personal cost to you. Mm -hmm. Just If you just step back and think about that, it just allows you that bit more clarity and insight into, you know, the bigger scheme of things. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say that out loud again. Think about why it's free because it comes at a personal cost to you. I think that was so important. I had to say it out loud again. Uh, <laughs> um, switching gears, um, and there's no good way to transition into this. So what is the role of spirituality or religion in your life? So for me, it's gradually evolved. I grew up as a Church of England Christian, <laughs> and I went to church. I was an altar boy, and... In so many ways, I went to a church school as well. Mm. So we were always taught religion from a Christian perspective and then taught about additional religions as, mm. a, as an addition. And some of it resonated with me when I was younger and some of it just kind of, I'm very scientific and I've kind of gone for a scientific education mm. and I'm very rational and... I understand the power of stories and yet I was still open. And when I grew into an adult, I started to question many of these things mm -hmm. on a period where I really didn't believe anything. 
Mm-hmm. And I've kind of honed that as I started to go through my life and started to understand that actually spirituality and religion are completely different things. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So for me, religion is quite often a story that's been told that will that will kind of guide you in a direction to hopefully find your way to a higher power. But you have to go through this as a vehicle to help you. Someone will help you communicate. So whether it be a minister or a rabbi, or a vicar, or a reverend. Mm. And they will help you transcend, and they will pass messages on to you. And for me, I was like, hmm, okay, so my own vision is spirituality is finding my own inner star, and that realisation of, you know, my existence, clearly, we're made up of energy, we're made up of atoms, we vibrate on frequencies, like I am now seeing and speaking to you, mm-hmm. just through what you can say is things in the air and waves that we can't see. So we Mm. can't quantify them. But if you walk into a room after your two friends have had an argument, they don't need to say anything. You can sense it. Mm -hmm. And we can sense atmosphere. And we are, science doesn't like to go down that kind of route because it's very, very hard to quantify these things. But there's definitely elements there that I believe that we can get in touch with ourselves deeply and understand ourselves and that's really the role of spirituality is to start to understand yourself and there is nothing that stops you from kind of connecting with that higher power i don't believe you need religion as a vehicle and that's not to say religion is a bad thing because the power of religion stories teaches really valuable insights on the values that we should live our lives by And when you take all the major wisdom traditions and religions together and strip out all the places, the names Mm -hmm. and the aspects, what you find is they all champion very similar things. Mm. So those power of stories are important because it's those stories from thousands of years ago that still exist today and ministers and, you know, preachers still stand there and share those stories and from a biological point of view, we've only really got a grasp of data in this century. And for the hundreds of thousands of years of existence of us as a species evolved to this level, we didn't have data, we had stories. Mm-hmm. So those mm-hmm. stories are really important. And I just think that they are, they are important, but those same stories told to people from a young age shape them into a cultural position where they honestly believe that that story is the only way, that story is correct, mm-hmm. and that people with differing stories, even though if you dilute them down, the stories are very, very similar, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. they are wrong, mm. that the higher power is not the one that I believe in, you believe in a different higher power and therefore you are wrong and I must be right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And it's just, it's divisive Mm. while being important. And I think that kind of spirituality element, it's about connecting to yourself. It's not about being told what to believe, but to look deep inside yourself emotionally and then detach and diffuse from all the stimuli and information you're constantly being bombarded with and actually just spend time to reflect on who you are and what you were brought here to do. What purpose and missions do you need to undertake to be fulfilled as a human being, to feel that when you leave the planet and go to whichever other realm you travel to, 
that you've done a good job and that you don't really have any regrets. Mm-hmm. And you don't really need religion to tell you that. Yeah. Religion might guide you and it might give you an element of, you know, an element of community, which is vital. And I think that we tend to not realise that religion brings community and connection for people who would be isolated otherwise. So it's very important to look at it from a full spectrum. But for me, I don't believe in any particular religion. I do believe there is a high power up there. And I do believe that gradually my work will take me closer towards that and help me grow as a spirit inside myself. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, And so going with, uh, since you believe in a higher power, what is your definition of God or whatever that higher power is? Yeah, I mean, it's something that I find quite hard to define because Mm -hmm. you kind of almost shape to have these beliefs if you've been in a religious place. Mm -hmm. And I just honestly see it as something that is an... It's a, it's a, it's the mystery. Yeah. yeah. The beauty is we don't know how to define it. Mm-hmm. And that is the beauty of being human, that we define ourselves and have a self-identity and a self-image that quite often is, well, is completely constructed. When mm-hmm. we're born, mm-hmm. we don't have this self-image. We're just a baby, you know, yeah. helpless. Yeah. And for the first year... We, uh, we just pray, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> literally. Um, but then we start to build some kind of, you know, self-image and self-identity and that kind of sticks with us. And I believe it's almost in some ways, it's not right to try and create an image and an identity for, for, for our higher power. Mm-hmm. And I think to give it a name, well, as soon as you give it a name, you kind of, you, you branch it into something which then... Like all the religions, they all give the high power a name and a mm-hmm. representation. And I kind of define it as something that we can't define. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I like that answer a lot. I Actually, some of my favorite answers that people give are the non-answers. Uh, <laughs> um, um, so then following with that, uh, is free will an illusion? How is it or is it not? oh boy (laughs) that's sort of the point (laughs) yeah oh it's not often that i'll get into this but it's 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 interesting i do believe that we have some element of free will Mm -hmm. yet at the same time we have to be so aware that when you think you've got free will you've not (laughs) yeah (laughs) The problem is the awareness and there's so many factors that influence our decisions. Mm -hmm. We've got so many biological processes that happen within us. And it's interesting because I kind of look at my own journey and the challenges I've had. And you realize that two people could see the same challenge in a completely different way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you've got to kind of understand that it's not, you have the free will to take ownership over a challenge but people will have a different path to do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and people's lived experience travels with them. The beliefs and who they believe they are travels with them. You have your own thoughts and your feelings. It's up to you how many you jump into and come out of. But there's so many automated processes within us as humans, like even beyond habits, like do you have the free will to breathe? Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
And it's like, okay, do you, do you have the free? You have the free will to sleep, mm-hmm. but you also have the free will to deprive yourself of sleep and kill yourself. Right, <laughs> right. So yeah, it's. Um, I honestly believe that. Do we have some elements of free will? Yes. Do we have complete free will? Definitely not. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, so going through all of these other things of like deciding what's best for you and uh, kind of creating your, your own path outside of religion, uh, how do you determine what good behavior is? Mm. <laughs> so, well, yeah, because I think in so many ways, everyone has a moral compass. Mm-hmm. And that in itself is something that's bio-individual to all of us. So, strangely, as a coach, you can have people say to you things which immediately trigger you to think, whoa, okay, don't believe with that, don't believe in that. Mm-hmm. Or that's actually something that, in certain circumstances, you would consider reporting because it's morally morally, morally corrupt mm-hmm. or it's ethically out of place with your values. Mm-hmm. But it's not my place to judge people on the values it's my place to help them get to a place where they've got clarity on their own direction. Mm-hmm. So in a, from a coaching perspective, you have to put your morality and values aside because you're helping people to define their own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you can help people find that actually the moral compass they have starts to shift because they start to dig deeper in themselves and realize that actually that's not the path or that that is actually a limiting belief holding them back from their own happiness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So good behavior is incredibly subjective. Mm -hmm. And in so many ways, people have to kind of assign and decide what that means to them. Mm -hmm. Because everyone, we all have the answers inside of us and we all really know who we are, but it's so clouded that you have to wade through and in fact, some of the best ways to do it are to say, you know, when you die and your family takes the stage to, at your funeral, what are they going to say? Right. When right. your friends take the stage, what are they going to say? How about your neighbours across the road? They didn't even know you that well, but what are they going to say? And in so many ways, they're not going to step up there and say, oh, you made a billion pounds or, oh, you had 100,000 Instagram followers. <laughs> right. You're actually, you're actually really going to want them to say something about the character that you had, the difference that you made. Did you make an impact? Did you live a good life? Yeah. And do you, know, do you leave the earth a better place than you came? And when people kind of anchor into that, it does build an element of moral decision into what they do in their everyday life. And it completely can change people's perspective and we all have our own perception of things. And it's important not to push that perception on others because you've not lived through their eyes. And in some ways, it's actually more important to step back out of your own body and look at yourself as an actor in the game of life and just watch as you go around and interact and do the things that you do from a third person like you're watching a film. And just think, does that align with my story? And I think it's really important because like, being authentic is increasingly banded around as one of the ways to really feel fulfilled. But the root of the word authentic is from author. You write your own story. Hmm. 
So you actually, by writing your own story, you become who you are. You become your authentic self. And we can't, we can't think our way to clarity. It's all about action. And in so many ways, you kind of find your authentic self by trying things and doing things, experimenting and find what works. What doesn't, like the person who doesn't do anything, tries to think, they can read all the books and do lots and lots of thinking, but they're never going to get that bit closer because really it's action and intention which get us that definition of what we are. And it's because we make mistakes and realize that things don't align with us, we learn that lesson. Mm. And that's why I would honestly tell children not to just be well-behaved because you become, you know, you don't, you're not willing to push those boundaries. You start to conform. You always take advice. And the people who change the world are the ones who look at it and think the society's sick. I'm going to go in the opposite direction. I'm not going to conform. I'm not going to take advice. I'm going to be iconoclastic, understand myself and be that person. And when you do that, that's when you step away from the influences that pull you into just being another person and you become yourself. Yeah. Now that's, that's really good. <laughs> so then kind of talking about how uh how to be a better person and we we live in a time where people are so divided uh how do we reduce the division that keeps wedging in between everyone and obviously now we're in uh quarantine so it's even more divided literally but uh, mm. how do we kind of come together uh a little bit more yeah, I mean, it's challenging. And hopefully this particular period will make people realise in some aspects that the anxiety, the fear and the concerns that we have, it's a shared human experience. Everyone feels those emotions. And for that reason, it doesn't really matter where you're from, what your heritage is, who you are, how you identify we're all human beings made out of atoms. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's just that simple on, on that kind of level. But the division is there and it's it's increased when people are propagated towards those who believe in a similar way. And I'm sure that society's biggest challenge is to get people all directing towards something bigger. But crises tend to do that. So mm -hmm. I almost take a, a view from, you know, uh, evolutionary psychology that so often tribes were fighting against each other, fighting, fighting, fighting all the time. Humans just love division and fighting. <laughs> and then some massive, massive lizard came and some of the tribes looked at each other and were like, okay, bigger challenge, let's work together. Yeah. And that that is how humans have always been. Every time something bigger than ourselves comes along to devastate us, we all start working in tandem. And, you know, we that, that's why we have, you know, hormones such as OxyContin. It's to actually bind us together in times of crisis. Mm -hmm. um, and yet it's so easily in a world where we become more individualized and more, you know, effectively not looking at a bigger picture as much. But I think with issues, if you look at the climate change, that is a massively divided argument. But you start to realise that 80% of the world lives within 60 miles of a coastline. Mm. And as communities start to disappear because they're basically underwater, people lose the home, they lose the culture, 
they lose part of their identity and they are fearful. Someone a bit more inland is like, eh, climate change, absolutely fine. But those people, those people will migrate. They have to. And in the UK, migration is a big issue. People don't really like it. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. honestly believe that some things are sacred and sovereign to them and that people come and take from that. And yet we all live on this planet together and it's one planet we've got to all bind together to, you know, regenerate because the way things are going at the minute, it's not really in the best place. Sure, sure. And it's kind of about that realisation that as people start to connect to themselves and realise that actually everyone's human, strip away the identity and the culture, strip away the frameworks and just be you and see the next person as them. And in so many ways, what we want to do is we want our perspective and perception to be other people's. We want to change them. We want them to be more like how we want them. Well, no, you've got to be yourself and let other people be them. Yeah, I like that. Um, What are you optimistic about for our future? I'm definitely optimistic about us moving forward I'm optimistic about the potential for technology to increase human health. I'm optimistic about the cultures of workplace and sleep becoming more envisioned and more vitalized because we spend 100 hours of a week either in a workplace or in a sleep environment. So two-thirds of our lives are spent there and we spend all our time designing a living room and designing spaces like a car. (laughs) So a lot of our time is spent and a lot of our finances spent on honing little areas of our lives where we don't actually spend that much time. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that through my work to look at more conscious leadership, where companies are vehicles for not only for stakeholders such as investors, but also society, their employees, the collaborators, the clients and customers, where they're looking to actually do something bigger And as we move into a a new phase of the world where if you look at the 200 richest entities in the world, over 150 of them are companies. So the future finance and innovation isn't going to come from governments and nations. It's going to come from companies. And so I'm optimistic that companies can start to solve the problems of the future by preventing them today. Mm. And I think that's my biggest optimistic hope and a big part of my journey is going into companies and shaping them for the future, making sure their employees are optimized, are working, and they are looking actually at the future's challenges because we as a species tend to look at what's happening now, can I fix it now? Mm-hmm. And we benefit so much more when we say, what are the challenges of the future? Let's start preventing those today so we don't have to stick in plaster or crisis manage when we hit that point. Hmm. Yeah. Um, What makes you content? What makes me content is knowing that I'm on my path, on my journey, and these missions that I undertake. It's just spending time with my children, who are now five and seven. Hmm. That just makes me content and knows that if I'm able to change the world that they grow up into, 
then they will be able to carry that on and make a change themselves. And I want them to follow their own authentic paths and become the man and lady that they want to be. But I am content knowing that I'm making a difference. And when I take a client and companies through a process and they come out of the other side, there's a yeah. massive amount of contentment knowing that they have made a change and are evolving and it's embedded. So it doesn't require me to be there forever. It becomes organic and grows inside. And then I can leave to start a new project. So that gives me contentment. It gives me fulfillment. And then it gives me excitement to keep going to, on to the next one. Yeah. I like that. Uh, a few more for you. Uh, this question sounds like an attack, but I just think it's funny how direct it sounds. Uh, <laughs> when will you be satisfied? Oh, I'll be satisfied when I'm on my deathbed and I know that I've made a difference. I know that I'll have stayed in contact with my friends. I won't have just worked my whole life and that I won't regret not doing things. So I very much take an approach now that when you when I'm questioning whether I'm going to do something and I'm stood up against that door of fear where you're like, oh, should I open it? Should I open it? Do you want to go through? I just say, you know what? Open it and go through. Because as human beings, we regret what we don't do and we quite often quickly forget what we did. Mm -hmm. And that is going to be my satisfaction knowing that I get towards the end of my life and I don't have any regrets. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, what advice do you have for people in general? Um, so my advice is to kind of switch on and spend a bit of time reflecting. Like we live so much of our lives busy on autopilot. We'll be walking along the street and we don't even feel the wind on our face, feel the sunlight coming into our eyes, our feet on the ground, just the smell and sensation. And yeah, it's true. We haven't got tight saber-toothed tigers chasing us every day. <laughs> so we don't have to switch our senses on, but we should do because that keeps our acuity to the world and that connection is so vital for everything because you start to learn how to understand yourself. You start to learn how the things that you do affect your mind, the things that you eat affect your body, how much sleep you have affects your conflict, your mistakes, your relationships. And when you switch on your senses, you start to switch on your body. When you switch mm -hmm. on your body, you feel how things change and that allows you to understand. So you eat that cake, it feels good and sweet in your mouth. Mm. It's hyperpalatable. Mm -hmm. 10 minutes later, you've got a sugar rush and you're full of energy. 30 <laughs> minutes later and down your blood sugar goes right. and you feel awful. Mm -hmm. And... <laughs> we we saw so short-sighted that we'll see the initial hyperpalatable hit that's been scientifically designed to, you know, dissolve on our tongue. That's pleasure. Mm. Little little hit of dopamine. But is that worth how you feel afterwards? Mm. And it's starting to actually link just a bit more longer term. How do things actually make me feel? Not right now, but just a little bit in the future. Yeah. And it's that identity that allows us to start thinking right okay this is how it is and i think the, the another big thing that i kind of go on is you need to shape your identity and decide who you want to be and who you want to become and instead of doing what you feel like 
you need to do what your identity says. So what happens is quite often we'll feel a certain way and that'll affect our actions. So we won't go and do it because we don't feel like it. And then that becomes our identity as a person who makes promise to itself, makes promise to ourselves and then doesn't follow through on becoming who we want to be because we didn't feel like it. But if we flip that over and we have an identity, so we want to be like this, we want to train like an athlete. So what's our action? When we wake up in the morning and we don't want to train, we go and train because that's our identity. And then you feel great because you're being congruent with, with who you want to be. And it's yeah. flipping that focus. I like that. Uh, lastly, and potentially the most important, uh, cake or pie? <laughs> cake. <laughs> wow, okay, yeah. Uh, yeah. Cake is rare, actually. I get less cake than I get uh, pie. <laughs> you, you know why, though, Santiago? It's my birthday today, and who ah, can't have go. a birthday yeah. without cake, <laughs> as my children say? <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, Lee, thank you so much for doing this with me. It's been a pleasure. Uh, where can we find you and your things? Yep, so I'm online at leechambers.org, at essentialize.co.uk, Twitter at Essentialize, and Instagram at Essentialize Coach. Right. Uh, and to note that uh, my listeners are American, and we probably spell Essentialize with a Z, but this essentializes with an S. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, uh, it's been a great pleasure, and... Uh, I wish we could have talked about video games a little bit, but maybe we'll uh, we'll do that on the next one. <laughs> next time, next time. All right. Uh, so with that, I'm Santiago Ramones. I'm Lee Chambers. Um, and sure, I'll do my outro real quick. Uh, you can find everything that I do on my website, SantiagoRamones.com. I make music. You can find my electronic stuff, my singer-songwriter stuff, and my composery stuff all on my website. And you can find the stuff that I've done with Power Cycle, a experimental electronic trio. We have an album out called Too Many Damn Cables. It's completely improvised. And uh, you can find this podcast anywhere you find great podcasts and leave reviews and comments and tell your friends and just how good of a conversation I just had with Lee. Um, and uh, I always send my podcast with my three things. They shape my life philosophy. Those three things are love never fails, it's going to be okay, I might be wrong. <laughs>